You're listening to episode 138 of the Tennis Files podcast. Athlete monitoring, workload, and recovery with Tim Roberts. Witness history at Roland Garros, where old rivalries meet new talent on the clay battleground. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled access as the world's top players in tennis face off to see if the veterans maintain their dominance or if a fresh face rises to challenge them. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Welcome to the Tennis Files podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now, here's your host, Mehrban Iranshad. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Tennis Files podcast. My name is Mehrban Iranshad, a former Division I college tennis player. And on the show, I interview the world's top pros, experts, and coaches to help you improve your tennis game. And today I have a great interview with Tim Roberts. And Tim is the Director of Sports Science at Theragun. And I actually checked out uh, this really cool uh, percussive therapy device called Theragun at the Racket Paddle and Sports Show Conference. I probably bungled the name there, but there was basically a conference slash display show where in Orlando where they showed off a bunch of different racket products and uh, related tennis tech and racket uh, and paddle stuff. And then there was also a huge golf show that was like 10 times as fancy, which is kind of annoying. Um, but I understand, you know, given the, the money uh, disparity in both sports. But anyways, uh, it was pretty amazing because I'm usually very... I don't know what the word is, but kind of careful about what I spend my money on. I obviously like to do my research and I generally don't just get like wowed by somebody's presentation and then buy stuff on the spot. That's usually how I am. Um, maybe my friends will debate me who have come along with me on such shows. But anyway, I checked out this device and really cool and I was really, really impressed and I got one. And this show isn't all about like pushing Theragun or anything like that. I just setting up that uh, I was really, very impressed by the product. And then I actually asked uh, more about the company. And then I heard that they had uh, predictably a bunch of uh, different experts. And there's one named Tim Roberts, of course, who's the guest on the show today, who's the director of sports science over there. And he has also previously worked at the Gatorade Sports Science Institute at IMG Academy in Bradenton, Florida for about, I think, nine years or so. Um, he is known as a world-leading expert in sports science for golf. Uh, and he also has a lot of knowledge, of course, to help tennis players as well. He's got a master's degree in exercise and nutrition science and the 4.0 GPA, too, that I saw, which is pretty impressive. Uh, he's got a TPI Fitness Level 3 certification as well as a uh, Functional Movement System certification. And so on the show, we get into a lot of uh, very helpful subjects and one that I haven't covered too much. And we, you know, we got into this a little bit in the previous episode, episode 137 with Alex Johansson on tennis tech, but not so much in as far as 
the ins and outs of athlete monitoring and workload and how to track that. And it's a lot simpler than you'd think. Uh, really interesting and, uh, and you know, very easy way that anybody can do that Tim talks about on the show. Uh, and then we also get into, uh, you know, how what you monitor then impacts your next moves going forward. And, and obviously, as I titled the show, you know, how, the importance of knowing your workload and then trying to uh, progressively improve how much workload you can handle and then also recovery. And this is where we also talk uh, a bit about Theragun, which I, again, have really enjoyed using and I use it a lot and it makes uh, makes recovery quite much easier than your normal foam rolling. And if you're interested in checking out Theragun, you can go to tennisfiles.com slash Theragun. That's T-H-E-R-A-G-U-N for uh, special member pricing there. But uh, in any case, I really hope that you enjoy this interview. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Tim is clearly an expert in sports science and I think you're going to get a lot of great tips and learn some techniques on how you can simply monitor uh, your workload, your intensity, and then take that data and then figure out, um, you know, how that data can help you and what to do next. So really hope you enjoy this interview. And without further ado, here is my interview with Tim Roberts from Theragun. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Tennis Files Podcast. It's really a pleasure and an honor to have Tim Roberts on the Tennis Files Podcast. He is the Director of Sports Science at Theragun, and I brought him on because I I know that, and you know also, that fitness is a huge part uh, of your game. Uh, It's really, really important, and uh, I thought of that there would be nobody better to bring on than somebody with Tim's background. Uh, he is just a sports science uh, wealth of knowledge, and he also has uh, a wealth of knowledge in the areas of nutrition and recovery and so forth. And so we're going to touch upon all these topics and more in this episode. But first off, Tim, thanks a lot for coming on to the podcast. I really appreciate it. No, thank you very much. It's uh, it's a pleasure to be on and uh, excited to talk sports science and tennis. For sure. And uh, it, it's really uh, cool how I uh, got connected with you. I, I actually really by chance uh, attended the racket sports uh, and, and paddle show in Orlando. And then I met some of your team on the tennis side of the huge sports show in, in Orlando. And then uh, I actually was so impressed by Theragun that I actually purchased it and I've been using it and, and I've been loving it. And we'll talk about a Theragun a, a bit later, but it's a great recovery tool, which I really enjoy. But uh, Tim, uh, from a sports science perspective, uh, you, you've worked with some really great athletes, you know, at the uh, Gatorade Sports Science Institute and other places. But from a sports science perspective, who is the best athlete that you've worked with, and what makes them such a great athlete? Well, that's a uh, that's a good question to start with. I think I, I've been very fortunate to work with a, a lot of top athletes across many uh, different professional sports, and I think. Um, it, it's a very difficult question to answer. I think um, the interesting thing about sports science and when we might evaluate athletes in certain ways, whether it's in the lab or the field, one thing that kind of really strikes me and, and kind of is really interesting is that every single athlete, even if they're an MVP, a world champion, an Olympic gold medalist, they always have kind of areas of opportunity. Um, we might say where um, we can find things in the in the data that we collect and, and ultimately kind of help kind of refine what they're doing to make them better. I think. 
if I had to pick one, um, probably the most all-round athlete in terms of the kind of the different physiological measures that we took, metabolic measures, um, and kind of their performance would probably be Dwayne Wade, uh, NBA former NBA player. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, that that's uh, that's a very good pick. And uh, actually, you know, just popped in my head. It's mentally. I think for some players, uh, when they compare themselves with athletes like that, then it kind of uh, it's kind of tough, you know, because you kind of think like, well, I mean, I'm so far off of them, so uh, there's really, you know, there's no point in Im- improving ourselves. But what is, you know, what are the the benefits, and what can you say to these people as far as like really how fulfilling and how important it is to to really concentrate on your your uh, your physical fitness and nutrition and so forth? No, absolutely. I think. When you when you look at kind of the, the best athletes in the world, and we and especially in tennis, when you look at the people competing on the different tours, and then you you think about yourself, I think the thing to consider is is that ultimately we're all human. Uh, we all have the same physiology. We all have the same uh, metabolism. And what we know is that through physical fitness um, and the work that we put into that uh, is kind of directly correlated with performance measures. And that also when we consider things like nutrition and hydration, sleep, et cetera, um, there's now a, a large body of literature that it kind of really talks to the importance of it, uh, whether it's in relation to performance directly on the court, uh, whether it's uh, in relation to kind of the adaptations we're trying to make from our training uh, or whether it's to recovery as well. So I think when we think about it, um, whether you're the person who plays just at the weekend or whether you're the person trying to uh, kind of break into the world's top 100, there these are kind of fundamental um things now fundamental uh kind of uh behaviors that that really can truly uh help you become a better athlete for sure there tim and uh, i'm curious too uh, everybody has their story as far as why they got into a particular field so i'm wondering what motivated you to get into the field of sports science Oh yeah, that's uh, that's actually from a from a very young age. Uh, I was fortunate to uh, my dad was a dental surgeon and uh, always uh, kind of very much kind of from a young age would talk to me and my siblings around science and kind of that was kind of a a really key part of our upbringing. Uh, and as well as that, my dad was a very keen sportsman, um, played for a, a lot of different sports through his university career and also my grandfather. Um, up until his 70s, he was regularly going to the gym, playing soccer, etc. So kind of that merge of the kind of the science background in my family, as well as kind of the kind of the keen sports people and kind of the enthusiasm for physical activity meant that it, the two being put together was really the ultimate kind of field and kind of a area of interest that I really wanted to pursue. And then I've been kind of very fortunate to make a career in that. Excellent stuff there. And what are some things that you did that accelerated your uh, knowledge of this field that maybe perhaps uh, some of our audience can also take away and implement? So I think I think the when when it comes to sports science, um, it, it's a very broad field. Uh, you can look at biomechanics, you can look at exercise physiology, biochemistry, uh, sports psychology, etc. So extremely broad field, and a lot of it is really obviously grounded in the work that's done in in these academic institutions and universities around the world. But I think one thing that I was very lucky kind of with is kind of being able to really implement it in the field and gain experience working with athletes. I think to me, kind of 
the, my philosophy is that really sports science is to support the coach and the athlete working together. So sports science on its own is is not as valuable as when it's used to kind of help the coach and the athlete in their work together to try and improve performance and recovery, et cetera. So I think the the key thing that I was able to do was to then was to be in the field, be working with many different sports, many different athletes, many different coaches, kind of seeing the ways in which uh, kind of the, the unique ways they worked in their unique situations and then start to be able to form kind of experiences around, well, how does sports science fit? And uh, I think when it comes to sports science and when it comes to kind of people being interested in the field and looking at kind of how to, how to go about it, I, I don't think there's anything as well as your academic kind of qualifications, I don't think there's anything that can really uh, kind of supersede just experience working with athletes. I think that's the, the key. Yeah, great stuff again. And so you worked many years. I think you you mentioned uh, in our call last week, like like nine years at the Gatorade Sports Science Institute uh, at IMG Academy in Bradenton, Florida. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. I uh, kind of joined the GSSI team in, in 2011, was fortunate to move to Bradenton, Florida and be on the IMG's uh, campus, IMG Academy campus. And then, yeah, just left uh, late kind of 2019 was uh, was when I kind of finished my time with them. Gotcha. And so a lot of, uh, of course, interesting experiences there. And I read that one of your duties was, and you kind of touched upon this a minute ago, that it was performance testing in the lab and field and then translating it, uh, you know, what you what you found to, to the uh, athlete and, and coach and so forth. So I was wondering kind of what that process was like, especially like what performance testing consisted of in the lab and then how to transfer that. Yeah, so... Really, um, sports science was was really kind of grounded in the lab, but then also has applications in the field. So we'll, we can start with the lab. But uh, what we do, we ha- we would have kind of a, an entire range of different tests that we could do. So when an athlete came to us, we would kind of uh, first have like an initial consult, kind of understand what their needs are. Do they have they and their coach already already identified areas where they might need help, or is it kind of a blank slate for us to kind of identify places where we could help them improve? And then the, in the lab, we had the ability to uh, look at things like body composition um, with, a, with various different technologies. We could look at what we call resting metabolic rate, which is when we get an understanding of uh, an athlete's caloric needs when they're at rest. We had the ability to look uh, on the treadmill, uh, traditional tests, such as uh, your your listeners may be familiar with things like a VO2 max, but we could also look at what we call substrate utilization. So where we, we look at how much carbohydrate and fat are being used as uh, fuel uh, in different exercise modalities. We had a wonderful space where we could uh, kind of really change everything up um, in terms of we could put turf down or hard flooring down. We could uh, kind of look at more sport-specific kind of movement-based agility tests uh, in the lab setting. And then we also had the ability to uh, do what we call isometric testing as well. Uh, sorry, isoconnected testing, uh, where we could look at things like isometric strength, concentric, eccentric, and do it kind of very limb by limb in a, um, in a manner which uh, kind of we can do in collaborative in a collaborative way with sports medicine professionals, or we could do in more of a holistic approach to, to understanding the, the athlete's strength. Strength. So that was uh, the lab testing, and then, but in the field, we could do some really cool stuff as well. In the field, we could look 
at the amount of work that the athlete's doing. Um, and we uh, we can talk about kind of athlete monitoring a little bit later, but mm-hmm. whether it's the the external workload, so kind of how much, uh, maybe if it's a tennis player, how, how much distance they're covering on the court, the speeds that they're moving, uh, acceleration, deceleration. We could look at the internal load, which is kind of the individual's uh, own individual response to that external load. So this could be measured with heart rate. It could be in more subjective measures. Um, and then we also, um, we would regularly work with the athletes, uh, especially in Florida with the uh, the extreme environment at different times of the year. We'd look, work in the field and uh, do what we call sweat testing. So we were able to kind of really personalize an approach to hydration for the athletes at IMG Academy by understanding kind of how much they sweat as an individual, but also uh, the composition of their sweat. Uh, and from that, provide them kind of a personalized hydration strategy. So a whole host of tests, both in the lab and the field. Um, and the entire point of them is to really understand, okay, what what are these what is the athlete's needs and how can the coach and the athlete kind of work in a, a more informed manner to, to help them improve. Cool stuff, Tim. So, uh- of course, you had uh, just a state-of-the-art uh, facility over there at Gatorade, um, the Sports Science Institute. Um, but I'm wondering, you know, of all those those tests that you mentioned, are are all of those tests still able to be? Uh, are they still accessible by the common, you know, competitive tennis player? Uh, can they can they still go somewhere and get these tests performed? And and would it be worth it to do so? So a, a lot of them you will be able to find in different facilities. It's becoming more popular for kind of fitness facilities around the U.S. Uh, and around the world to be able to offer different types of, of sports science testing. So it is available. Whether or not it, it's valuable really kind of depends on the outcome. As something that I'm kind of very passionate about um, when it comes to sports science is that data on its own is is not very valuable. So even if you get a test and, and get some information, that in itself um, is not very valuable. What's more kind of valuable is how you plan to use that information. So what I would consider is that um, while, the, while these types of tests are accessible, Think about first kind of the the different behaviors that you could change in terms of your training, like how often you train, uh, how you train, uh, or what your nutrition is, how you could change your nutrition, et cetera. And if you feel kind of very kind of motivated to to kind of change one of those areas, that would be when I would go and kind of seek the opportunity to kind of work with someone and, and to have these tests done. If it's more out of interest just to just to do them, uh, I think there'd be kind of uh different i would do i would do different things in terms of kind of returning on investment uh with your time and your effort um rather than going out to get the tests themselves got it tim how does one figure out how much they should be training oh yeah so that's a that's a really great question and i think really kind of leads into kind of the conversation around athlete monitoring i when we kind of fundamentally when we, we if we think about defining what athlete monitoring is it's it's simply really collecting the same type of data over time to help kind of inform decisions and one of those things that you can collect and uh, and is often done in kind of the elite sports setting is what we call uh workload monitoring and so Really, because how much you should train is so individual, uh, athlete monitoring is really the, one of the key ways to do it. And it's built on the uh, kind of foundations of work that was done by sports scientists back in the 1970s uh, when they, they created something called the fitness fatigue model. And so what they did, it, it's common sense now, but they put a mathematical uh, model to it. They say, well, when you do exercise, so when you train as a, as a tennis athlete, whether it's on the court or whether it's in the gym, two things happen 
immediately um, you experience fatigue from the training session that you've just done or from the practice session you've just done. You experience fatigue and then your performance will decrease because of that. However, because of that same training session, kind of in a slower manner, your fitness or a component of fitness uh, will improve, uh, which is a, it's a much more slower improvement compared to the immediate uh, kind of appearance of fatigue. And therefore, you have that uh, kind of gradual increase. So once the fatigue dissipates, because of that fitness component improving, your performance actually increases. So what happens is you train. After the training, you, your performance goes down because of fatigue, and then a little bit later, it will it will increase, and that's just from a single training session. And then, so what athlete monitoring does is it allows the coach and the athlete, uh, as they train maybe multiple times a week. Uh, obviously, at the elite level could be uh, most days of the week, uh, or whether it's just someone at the weekend uh, who plays tennis and wants to kind of add a couple more days during the week as well. What athlete monitoring does is it allows you to understand your own individual responses to training. Are you recovering enough? Are you not recovered? Uh, could you could you kind of fit in more training, or could you uh, do with having a little bit more rest between uh, training sessions? And so whilst we can put lots of different mathematical models to that, we can collect all types of data, we can, uh, there's also apps and different things that can do that. I think one of the, the other ways of describing athlete monitoring could be to listen to your body. So if you're someone who's playing training on a very regular basis and you're going through a period of time where you're feeling more tired compared to usual, uh, you're starting to get some kind of niggling injuries, et cetera. That might be a time when you need to kind of back off the training a little bit or look at some of those other behaviors such as your nutrition, hydration, and sleep to see if they're optimal. Whereas if you're someone who's always full of energy, uh, kind of feeling fresh, you're you're maybe only playing tennis a couple times a week, uh, your body feels great, then maybe there's the opportunity to again to to add in some more training. So Whilst uh, humans are pretty good at listening to their body, what we can do is with this athlete monitoring is is put a little bit more data, uh, kind of objective data, uh, into the understanding of that. Yeah, this is super super important, Tim, and everybody listening, because I it's it seems like a fine line a lot of times, and it's it seems hard to tell, you know. And also, you have uh, you know the, some coaches with the philosophy that you know you need to keep pushing, and it you know it'll just make you stronger if you keep going, but. Uh, it's just, I don't know, it just seems like a really tough area to uh, determine for the common player. And so that's why it's really important to uh, and potentially very useful to, to actually use technology to, to figure this all out. I mean, is that the case? Like, do you find that a lot of people just simply don't really know on their own sometimes or they have the mindset that they should just push through training and then they get hurt? No, absolutely. And I think as kind of as humans we always have our our own bias uh whether it is to some people might have a bias to to thinking they should do more others may have a uh, bias to kind of be kind of to kind of mitigate risk and and want to actually do less and i think what happens when you use technology uh when you use different monitoring techniques is you actually put some objective numbers to that so uh there will be days when there's different confounding factors when you don't feel great um, but the numbers are telling you, you know what, you're, you're actually recovered and you, you could go train again. Or there could be days where you feel absolutely fantastic, but you're starting to see uh, kind of numbers and different kind of measures that say, you know what, maybe you should back off again. So I think the way to think of athlete monitoring and, and kind of the way that data is collected uh, in that setting and to understand training load is to think about it more as being a dashboard. Uh, then you have these, these pieces of data and they're there to support 
the conversations between uh, yourself, how your body feels, uh, and if you're fortunate to be working with a coach in a in a kind of a full time capacity, it would kind of this information would really lead to rather than rather than decisions, it would lead to conversations uh, with the coach about what you should be doing. Thanks, Tim. And so uh, the inevitable question now is, what are the best uh, like either apps or devices out there or wearables today for athlete monitoring? Uh, and then I guess we'll get into ranking them later. Yeah, that's a that's a very good question. Um, I'd actually say that the the best place to start for for most athletes, for most tennis players, uh, would be actually just doing um, some simple math themselves. So a lot of times when you uh, you ask someone um, kind of kind of how much they're training or you think about technologies that could measure it, um, if if your listeners who aren't doing anything right now were simply just to start noting down how many minutes they play tennis for on different days and then start adding that up in terms of kind of how much they do in a week, uh, how that changes week to week, how much they do over a month. That would be a really, really great starting point and, and one that I recommend for everyone uh, that doesn't cost anything. Then um, on top of that, if, if they're feeling more enthusiastic, uh, what I would actually do is um, there's a method of um, kind of monitoring training load, uh, which uses what we call session uh, RPE or session rating of perceived exertion. So if they're already collecting their, their minutes, their duration of, uh, of playing tennis, what they would do is then for each one of those sessions, once they finished uh, the session, and kind of about 10, 15 minutes after the session, they would provide the uh, that that particular session a, a ranking of its uh, intensity for the whole session. So, um, if you if you think one would be uh, kind of walking uh, in a park super low intensity all the way up to uh 10 being absolutely maximal they could not have worked harder uh in the uh kind of they could not have worked harder in that session so they would rank it um kind of in that in that uh in that way and so then what they would do is to to get the measure of training load they'd actually take the duration in minutes of the session and multiply it by that session rpe um so for instance, if it was a an hour long, uh, they spent an hour, they spent 60 minutes on the court, and then they they rated the session was it was moderate, it was moderate to uh, on and on the scale if they if they Google um, SRPE uh, kind of CR10 scale is what they would do. It's a modified scale by a scientist called Borg. It's one through ten. They'd find that a five is around a moderate to kind of high uh, kind of intensity, and they what they would do then is they would take that 60 minutes times it by uh multiply it by five and they would have a training load of 300 and what it means is if the next day they might go out and they might do 120 minutes but it might be a much easier session uh it might be only ranked as a three so they could do 120 minutes that would be a training load of 360 so as you can see what happens is you start to be able to uh if they're if they're very keen and they like doing looking at duration of exercise as a simple way of monitoring what they're doing and if they should make changes once you start then looking at the intensity of it and looking at the product of that you get a really cool way to start seeing your training load and this is what a lot of uh, top athletes are doing uh, in a lot of the different sports, and I think those are those are really really great ways for your listeners to to start uh, and kind of start considering how much they're doing. Then after after that, um, then it really comes down to technology, and there's a lot of it. Um, I think um, 
whether it's ones that are uh, kind of measuring heart rate, um, there's uh, obviously a lot of those, whether they're wearables uh, at the wrist or even a chest strap. And then also ones that cover from a GPS standpoint, kind of whether it's steps, uh, whether it's GPS, it's looking at distance covered. Um, I think you can you can start to break down those as well. But I think whatever um, method that they use, whether it's a wearable technology, whether it's these, those simple kind of methods that don't require any technology that I, I described, I think the the key is then understanding um, how to use that data. And we can we can certainly go into that as well. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that was definitely my next question, a step-by-step process. So, I mean, once you, and should you like kind of keep track of this in like a, a like a weekly type of thing? Or does, does that make sense? Or is it like a different monthly or when do you review it? So I, I think it actually it's, it's kind of easy to explain if we if we kind of jump into what we're actually looking for and then um, be easy to explain kind of how to review it in kind of what certain timelines. And I think the key to understanding is, is actually a, uh, a principle of fitness, which a lot of your listeners may have heard of because um, it, it's talked about whether it's in strength and conditioning, whether it's in sports performance, um, but the idea of progressive overload. Um, that if you want to uh, get better, you need to uh, kind of provide a, a load, uh, a training load to your body, which is uh, slightly above um, what it's accustomed to. And this will help drive adaptation uh, to get better. Um, but this principle of uh, progressive overload, what we know now in kind of uh, from a lot of different research is that whilst, yes, we want to push our body to to kind of progress, um, if we push too much, uh, so if training load is increased uh, dramatically uh, and what might be considered or some people discuss as a, a spike in workload, what we can see is um, that this is actually associated with injury risk as well uh, and even illness as well, so injury and illness. So we know that our goal is if we're trying to get better as an athlete, as a tennis player, we want to gradually do more. But if we do too more, too much, too quickly, uh, we could risk injury and illness. So, and when we think about those spikes, um, they can occur from our, our, our own training schedule. Um, it could be that it's uh, a product of the environment. When the weather improves, people haven't been playing tennis for a long time, and then all of a sudden they, they start playing again at the level they did before. So we, there's lots of different occasions when, when this is apparent. Um, so when we think about the idea of workload, that we want it to gradually increase from where we currently are, uh, and we don't want it to spike, that's then how we might consider uh, how we look at the data. So um, fundamentally, week to week is a really easy way of doing it. Uh, comparing your average uh, over a period of time um, to then what you do in the so your let's say it's your your average of the last four or five weeks compared to your last week of work. That could be a way of doing it. Simply looking at what well, what was my average over this over this last month, and then how much did I do last week. Am I gradually increasing it or is am I seeing these big spikes and changes? And I think fundamentally what we're trying to do is we're trying to just gradually increase the amount of training load that we do if we want to improve uh, and not have and kind of not have it drop off. So we are not training and getting better, but also not having it jump too quickly. So fundamentally, that's what we're looking at and how we plan our training. It's, it makes sense to do it from a week to week basis because oftentimes just because of uh, the way uh, we operate in our lives, 
planning the the week ahead is is often a is often a really nice way of doing it. Love it, Tim. I really can't wait to actually uh, re-listen to this and take some notes and uh, implement the athlete monitoring for myself. Uh, I admit I need to do a better job of of that for sure, tracking how much I'm playing and the intensity scale and so forth. Uh, and we'll definitely link to. Um, you know, resources such as the scale you mentioned. Was that the uh, SRP? Was it CR10, the scale? Yes. Okay. Yep. Yep. Okay. It's a, what, um, there's a, a scientist called Borg, and what he did, he um, he developed a scale in which uh, people can rate their exercise intensity, and it's traditionally done as like a moment in time. So how, how intense does this exercise feel now? But what he did is he modified it um, so that it could be um, – he modified it from a scale that ran through six through 20 to one that was kind of zero through 10. Um, and then another scientist um, and a, a research group, uh, when they were looking at ways to measure training load across a variety of different sports and modalities outside of traditional running on a treadmill, which sports science was in the lab, um, what they did is they, they then modified its use so that instead of being how hard does this exercise feel right now? They started utilizing it and validated its use when it's a zero through 10 scale and, and you are simply saying, how hard was this session? Um, so it's been a very, very useful tool because of its simplicity, um, a very, very useful tool uh, and a wide range of activities. And one of the, the actual benefits of it is that if you're a tennis player who is not only spending time practicing on court, um, also then playing, uh, having uh, events that they're traveling to to play, um, and then also doing strength and conditioning in the gym. The simple method of what is the duration of time that you were physically active in whatever that activity was, and then what is the rating of the, the intensity of the session, you then can actually start to compare. So then what's really interesting is like, well, when I'm uh, at a tournament, and am I, is the load that I'm experiencing, is the intensity of the matches that I'm playing, is that is that similar or relevant uh, to the practice that I'm doing as well? So not only do you get the ability to monitor all those different activities, your overall workload as an athlete to make sure that you're not putting yourself at risk uh, of injury and illness and that you do give yourself more opportunity to recover. What, what you can start to do then is compare and say, well, you know what, my practice isn't as anywhere near as intense or the duration of what happens when I actually get to, to the competitive stage. And so then you actually have a lot more cool ways in which you start to utilize, utilize the information to inform um, not only your, your your training load and how you how you plan that, but also making it appropriate to your level of competition that you're going to be playing. Yeah, wonderful advice there too. Uh, and at the end, you know, I, I think it's really important to keep track of our practice versus match intensity because a lot of us, we, we get a little bit too loose, I could say, in, in practice and we're not intense enough. And then we wonder why uh, we can't perform, you know, that well in matches uh, because, you know, you, you've got to, yeah, in a lot of cases, uh, the players are practicing more intense than their matches are. So um, that's a, that's a great point there. So I know that we all, we, we obviously were playing tennis and hopefully many of us are training our, our physical fitness, but do you at all need to keep track also of other extraneous things? Like, let's say if I had a very stressful work week or if I uh, helped my friend uh, like move his stuff or something like that, like, do you, do you also, you know, keep track of that as well? Or is it like not, not so necessary to do that? I uh, know. Great question. So, um, Obviously, we've, when it comes to, to monitoring, we've, we've touched upon uh, monitoring the actual training load or workload currently, but there's, abs there's, there's a ton of other things that we can actually measure. And the, the idea, again, being 
that the measures provide us insight into uh, into the tennis player, into their response to things that they're doing, uh, and to inform us, can we change any of the, any of the behaviors that we uh, kind of are interested in, such as their training load, such as their nutrition, hydration, sleep. And one of the ways uh, that oftentimes is being done, there's many different validated surveys and questionnaires that can actually be um, completed on a regular basis by an athlete to get insight into what might be considered other life stresses uh, and to different behaviors that, that are appropriate for the athlete. But one thing that's being commonly done um, these days is is creating what we might call a bespoke wellness screen. So a wellness screen might be a series of questions um, that uh, it might ask you to rate your level of fatigue um, on a on a simple scale, maybe from zero through five, zero through ten on a different on a Likert scale or a, a visual analog scale. It might ask you to rate. Um, the stresses inside uh, kind of the stresses in your life outside uh, of tennis so are you do you have a lot of stress or do you not have very much uh, not very much stress stress it could ask you um, to rate your perceived recovery um, for, from I do not feel recovered all the way to I feel uh, 100% ready to go and you might also uh, kind of include in a wellness screen the hours of sleep that you had the night before uh, and a rating of the quality of your sleep so what happens is we've got the we've got the training load data. So we're seeing um, kind of how how much work, how much tennis we're playing, how much time we're spending in the gym on a week to week basis and any patterns or changes in that. And then when it comes to this wellness screen, what we have is we have another source of information which tells us, well, how is the athlete responding to that? Uh, are they getting, uh, as we see increases in that training load, how does their fatigue respond? How does their sleep respond? Things like that. Or if we're starting to see um, kind of their sleep decrease in the wellness screen, their, their stresses in their other like in the rest of their life increase, it can be a time where a coach uh, can have a conversation with the tennis athlete and to find out, oh, you, well, maybe they're a student athlete and they've got exams going on and they're up late studying. Uh, and then because of that, we're seeing more fatigue and we might need to back off on the training load. So what what we what we can do is we can and it and it's what's really important is creating one that's unique to the situation that this tennis player is in whether it's an amateur all the way up to the to the kind of the world's best creating a uh, a strategy when it comes to athlete monitoring to collect the data which really informs um kind of the most valuable kind of pieces of the puzzle in terms of of how the athlete is is not only working but also recovering uh and managing the rest of the things in their life so uh, it's certainly very very important to to measure things and monitor things beyond just training load um and there's a lot of different ways you can do it but that's just one of them hey it's kaylee cuoco for priceline ready to go to your happy place for a happy price well why didn't you say so just download the priceline app right now and save up to 60 percent on hotels so whether it's cousin kevin's kazoo concert in kansas city go kevin or becky's bachelorette bash in bermuda you never have to miss a trip ever again so download the priceline app today your savings are waiting to your happy place for a happy price go to your happy price price line witness history at Roland Garros where old rivalries meet new talent on the clay battleground tennis channel plus is your place to watch stream every court from your phone or smart tv live in hd Experience three weeks of unparalleled access as the world's top players in tennis face off to see if the veterans maintain their dominance 
or if a fresh face rises to challenge them. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Thanks, Tim. So for, let's say, mainly the audience here is a competitive tennis players, USC League, some tournaments, maybe, uh, well, 3-5 to 5-0. So for them to create like uh, or have created a a bespoke type of uh, wellness screening, uh, what do you suggest that they do? Like, should they kind of just do some research and to and go to a particular site and then try to create their own or should they go and seek uh, some particular type of expert to create one for them so yeah if they're fortunate enough to work with a coach um whether that be a tennis coach or whether that be uh kind of more on the fitness strength and conditioning side i would say kind of work with them uh ask the ask the coach um what information about uh if you this was coming from the tennis player themselves i would say what ask what is the information about myself which would help you kind of better plan uh your coaching and and the work that we do together that would be i think the best way to do it if it's something that someone's going to do in a more independent manner i would start super simple I would start kind of whether it's in a notebook, uh, they have a training notebook, whether it's in a a simple note taking app on their phone, um, just start rating your um, fatigue and recovery, let's say, uh, from one through 10, one being uh, on a fatigue scale, one being you're not very fatigued at all, 10 being you're absolutely exhausted. And if it was a recovery scale, it could be something simple as uh, one, you're not very recovered at all. So it'd be kind of be the inverse. And 10, you, you're, you feel 100% perfectly recovered. And just start kind of monitoring that over time. Even if it's just first thing kind of in the morning at breakfast, just kind of consciously kind of think about how your body feels uh, and making a note of it. That would be a really great place uh, to start. And then beyond that, um, it it could be that you seek out some kind of, um, if you're a high level player, really, really keen and interested. uh, There is uh, sports scientists around that will be able to kind of offer these services. uh, And then uh, it could be that in collaboration with them, uh, you utilize a certain app, or it could be that you um, kind of build out uh, a kind of a spreadsheet or something along those lines. Thanks again, Tim. So Assuming that somebody they've moved past the you know manual recording and whatnot, and, and you mentioned the different types, but I mean, do you have any favorite ones that tend to be utilized more often than not by your athletes in terms of either apps or or wearables? Yeah, in the wearable space, uh, a lot of them will simply use their their Apple Watch, okay. uh, and you can utilize some of the native data uh, kind of in that, uh, and some of the apps that are associated with with kind of the Apple ecosystem. But also, uh, a lot of athletes are obviously using the the very popular Whoop band as well. So, mm. uh, I think Whoop have done a, a really great job of providing a wearable that uh, not only provides insight into the the kind of the work that the athlete's doing um and um i believe they call it a a strain score is their kind of proprietary name to kind of what they talk about uh in terms of training load that's measured um kind of from a a variety of things such as your heart rate etc and then also they provide information around recovery um and they utilize something uh called heart rate variability or hrv um which is kind of within the scientific literature, um, there's a, a growing body uh, kind of in support of its use, uh, again, to kind of inform uh, and provide insight into uh, an athlete's recovery in terms of basically looking at their their nervous system and, and, their, and kind of their responses to, uh, to exercise as well. 
Very cool, Tim. Uh, just curious, I've heard about these uh, smart rings as well. I mean, do you know anything about those devices? Like, can they also be pretty useful? Yes. Yeah, so uh, I've actually worn one for a while myself. And again, uh, another kind of in the wearable technology space, a, a really cool advancement in making something as small as a ring. And from what my from my understanding and kind of from the reading that I have done, and, and I admit it hasn't been kind of I haven't done any more recently. Um, I think they're they're very well kind of they're sorry, they're well validated in terms of measuring overall sleep duration. Um just like other other different wearables, um, and that um, kind of there, it's a much more difficult to wear have a, with a wearable technology to actually measure um, sleep stages. But overall, sleep the the wearable rings seem to be doing a really great job. And then, when it, in terms of activity, I think um, any time that heart rate um, on its own is the 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 key measure of or the the only measure. Um, of uh, kind of physical activity, it's a little bit limited. Um, I'm sure your your listeners, those who play tennis, can relate that if they're um, kind of prior to a an important uh, match that they might be playing, um, they actually might find their heart rates elevated, even though they haven't started uh, exercising yet, simply because of uh, anxiety or nerves or kind of the the uh, apprehension before they play. So what happens with so whilst heart rate uh, over time it is is pretty good it, it can in its on its own be somewhat limiting so I think the ring the these wearable rings there's certainly some promise to them uh, especially around sleep but if it comes when it comes to activity I would be more inclined to to kind of look at that data but also start to utilize some things like just simply measuring the duration of their training week to week and and then potentially using that that RPE scale and, and training load measure we described. Got it, Tim. So, I mean, most important, as as you just mentioned, is uh, workload, and then you'd also be tracking sleep, and then any other um, important parameters. I know you mentioned heart rate, but any other ones? Yeah, I, I, the way I would look at it is first and first and foremost, measure workload in a in a way which is which is easy to do. So, um, oftentimes the kind of the, the key importance to monitoring is, is having enough data over time. And if you try and do it in a very complicated manner, people get bored of collecting it. It gets frustrating because it takes time. So right. first and foremost, measure workload in a, in a very simple manner. Second piece would be to uh, kind of measure the, your response uh, to that. So your individual response, whether that's through uh, kind of monitoring your kind of uh, your fatigue on a, on a scale, whether it's measuring your perceived recovery, whether it's looking at wearable technologies, which are uh, looking at things such as resting heart rate, uh, or it could be heart rate variability, etc. After that, then it would be what I consider more behavioral components. So we've we've got the we've got the workload that we've got the response to it, and then the third real level of it is these behavioral components. So think about the different things as an athlete, as a tennis player that you are, are really in control of. Which fund, first and foremost is often your sleep. Then it can be your nutrition. Then it can be your hydration and things like that. So that would be really the third level where we start to kind of monitor or measure different components of these behaviors to try and help inform us how we might optimize them further as well. So that would be kind of my three-step process to, to athlete monitoring. Excellent. Really appreciate that, Tim. And, and I wanted to touch a bit upon nutrition because I, I know you have a great background in that. So I mean, what are a couple just really fundamental nutrition principles that uh, tennis players and athletes in general probably should be following? Yeah, I think obviously nutrition is a is a is a vast topic, and better we're trying to condense it down. I think 
first and foremost, uh, the key to nutrition, whether it's um, a, a tennis player who is wanting to optimize their performance and recovery, or whether it is uh, they are looking at kind of weight management or body composition, et cetera. The, the, fun, the first principle to nutrition that they, they should be aware of is the idea of energy balance. And so simply what that is, is uh, making sure that they consume enough calories for their goal uh, relative to their calorie or caloric expenditure. So if if the goal is to perform and recover, you need to be making sure that you consume enough calories relative to the uh, training that you're doing. Uh, whereas if your goal is to uh, kind of lose weight and change your body composition, the goal would be to actually consume a little bit less calories uh, than you're actually expending in terms of your training and your physical activity from day to day. So first and foremost, uh, I think that the key is getting getting the right and right amount of calories um, would be my number one goal. And kind of obviously that leads into the question, well, how do you know if you're getting enough calories? And there is different ways we can measure uh, things in the lab. We can predict uh, calorie needs and then you can, uh, in a very time consuming manner, you can actually then start to track uh, calorie intake. But one of the, one of the things that I would actually recommend is that you, you don't need to do that. Um, and that one of the outcomes of, of getting correct energy balance is, is either no change or changes in weight occurring. So if you just measure your body weight, um, kind of once or twice a week uh, on a very consistent kind of way, whether it's kind of first thing in the morning before you do anything else and on the same day each week. As you see trends over time, if your weight is staying pretty much the same, it means you know your uh, your energy balance is correct. If it's gradually increasing, it means that you're actually consuming a little uh, kind of more calories than uh, you're actually expending. And then if you're gradually losing weight, you're actually consuming less calories uh, than you're actually than you're um, expending. So I think that would be my first principle when it comes to nutrition: making sure your energy balance is correct, uh, and just by measuring body weight to see to see how you're doing. Love it, Tim. I mean, it's so, so key. I mean, especially with the, well, for me, the first principle, um, right after work, I, I would play in these, uh, uh, government league matches. And then I'd find that I was, you know, quite tired and didn't have the energy. And then I, I realized, you know, that I should supplement my, my caloric intake. And so I did that and I found that I had much more energy and performed much better. So, uh, just a very simple example there of that. Uh, curious uh, about recovery. Let's touch upon that real quick. What's an ideal recovery r- routine that you would tell us for the average uh, a competitive adult player? Yeah. So when I, when I think of recovery, which is obviously a, a, a very hot topic, if we if we think of the kind of the sport industry, fitness industry uh, over the last ten years, a lot more focus is put on recovery. And I think the way that kind of I really understand it if you really look at the entire body of literature of what we what we know about the human physiology and and sport is that it really the recovery really starts with kind of four foundations and that's first of all making sure you get your nutrition correct so energy balance as we discussed uh consuming enough protein uh for your protein needs distributed throughout the day and then making sure the other macronutrients uh you're getting the right amount of those and the right timing of that so that's the first. So the first principle of recovery will be nutrition. The second principle of recovery will be hydration. So making sure that you are consuming enough fluids uh, to kind of to limit dehydration during your playing uh, when you play tennis, but also making sure you rehydrate afterwards. 
then the next principle of recovery uh, will be sleep, uh, really making sure you get adequate uh, adequate sleep um, and, and kind of high quality sleep. And I think for for adult tennis, for adults in general, uh, that's kind of making sure you get greater than seven hours. And may and and oftentimes people mistake time in bed for mm-hmm. actual uh, time asleep. So really, to get so if we if we think about people who are maybe are trying to achieve kind of eighty percent sleep efficiency, meaning that um, for only eighty percent of time that they're, they're trying to sleep or, or in bed, they will actually be asleep. And the goal is to get seven hours. So kind of your listeners can then kind of figure out kind of that like what they might need to do for that. And then the the fourth principle of recovery is going to be kind of rest is going to be actually um kind of managing your workload uh, managing your your schedule in a in a way that allows you to rest and then if those are our four principles uh, or the foundations of recovery as such um then you, we have an incredible amount of new technologies uh kind of modalities uh which can then really enhance the body's natural processes so whether this is um, things like cold water immersion or, or contrast water immersion, whether it is uh, things like uh, percussive therapy and kind of providing uh, the application of pressure to different tissues to increase blood flow to those areas mm-hmm. um, and those types of things. So for me, those are what we might consider kind of these supplements to recovery. Um, so once we get those four principles correct, if um, then then you can go into these those modalities. So then. As you described, what would be an ideal routine um, uh, when it, for a tennis player, as the, as you come off court, as you're done, uh, it would be to make sure kind of within a reasonable time frame, you're getting a well-balanced meal um, that's got um, kind of on average, let's say, uh, at least 20 grams of protein in it and some carbohydrate to place, replace the fuels that you've just used, that you're also uh, rehydrating from the, the fluid losses you may have incurred through sweat. Uh, immediately afterwards and then um, then you might utilize some of these modalities that you have access to Um, and then um, after that making sure you get enough sleep that would be uh, kind of fundamentally where I would start when it comes to a routine and what it's funny is that a lot of people these types of things in terms of recovery are are quite common sense Um, but humans despite having the knowledge quite often they, they don't actually complete or do the behaviors themselves. So just those simple few things about getting a well-balanced meal, making sure you're rehydrating, maybe use a couple of recovery modalities and then get a good night's sleep. It's amazing how many people don't do that. Um, and so it, it's a really great place to start. Yeah, I really appreciate that fantastic advice there on recovery, Tim. And yeah, it's it's really interesting. It's just in, in this day and age, I think there's just a lot of different distractions and other things and you get sucked into you know your phone and all this and that and then all of a sudden you are you've lost the time that you should have used for recovery and uh, proper uh you know nutrition and and so forth but i definitely want to talk about uh theragun because i can speak from firsthand experience having used it uh fairly consistently that i have definitely felt uh much more recovered and I really love using it. <laughs> I, I can't tell you how much I do. And I also have uh, had my uh, parents use it too, and they really enjoy it and look forward to using it as well. So I was wondering if you could talk to us about, um, you know, the story of, of Theragun and then uh, what it's what it does. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, 
so yeah, Theragun was uh, kind of really came about um, as kind of a, a product of kind of necessity. So the the founder of Theragun, uh, Dr. Jason Worsland, uh, is a chiropractor, and he was unfortunately in a, uh, a quite a serious motorcycle accident back in in 2008. And and as he continued kind of his rehabilitation, he uh, was trying to find ways to reduce pain uh, and kind of and he had always kind of grown up around tools and different things. And he, in his own chiropractic clinic, he had a few devices. Um, and what he kind of found is that some of them offered temporary relief, but he felt he could he could make something that would kind of help him more. So he started tinkering and, and playing around and, and kind of found a, a combination of, of a few things that, that actually had provided a therapeutic effect. And kind of really, that was it. it he kind of solved his own problem and, and, and it wasn't meant to be anything else. And I think um, he then uh, carried on as a chiropractor. And, and over the kind of course of the next few years, he found that this device that he had created uh, actually was able to help more than just him. It was able to help a few different people. So. He, for, because of that, he he then uh, went about uh, kind of creating instead of being a device that he created for himself and and used as part of his uh, chiropractic uh, care. He then went about kind of making this into more of a consumer thing. So from 2008 and that and that motorcycle accident, it wasn't until 2016 where there was actually a consumer product, uh, and then. This has kind of had several iterations to uh, again until until the version that we have now and uh, available to to athletes and people everywhere. And I think um, you touched on it on it uh, kind of briefly that not only you are enjoying using it, but uh, and so are your parents. And I think that's something that's very key about Theragun and and really the science of what it's based in is that there is actually benefits uh, for everyone, uh, which is which is very exciting and. I think kind of to, for your listeners to kind of understand what Theragun is and and kind of where kind of what the science is behind it, I think uh, we can first consider the kind of the history of the application of pressure. Um, if we think about applying pressure to an area of the body, applying pressure to a tissue, uh, kind of there's records that show that like fifth like 1500 years ago, uh, people were getting massages in in Egypt and China, and and so. Humans have understood for a very long time that if you apply pressure to a tissue, there's some sort of physiological response, some sort of psychological response uh, that is a positive uh, and kind of therefore have sought it throughout history. Then we just go back kind of 30, 40 years uh, in terms of sports medicine, and we start to see the introduction of things like foam rollers uh, into practice. We start to see different tools that are created, um, soft tissue tools. People and physical therapists are being kind of manual therapists and, and kind of eliciting pressure to the, the different tissues to try and get these, these positive effects. So what what Theragun is is really it's the the latest evolution in that. Um, what it does is uh, it's a tool that allows you to uh, apply pressure, but apply pressure in, in what can be considered a percussive nature. Um, so uh, the device actually uh, kind of applies pressure to the different areas of the body that you treat uh, up to 2,400 times per minute. Uh, and not only does it do that, but it has a motor which allows you to apply a lot of force uh, and that kind of really leverages the idea of lamp uh, amplitude uh, in how it applies that uh, pressure to the muscle. And so what's really cool is that um, when we consider the different devices and or the different tools that people use from a myofascial intervention standpoint, so your soft tissue work that athletes might integrate prior to their warm up um, and prior to or as part of their recovery, uh, 
now you're able to kind of utilize the the theragun to do that so some of the kind of the physiological effects of it we know uh that it um kind of reduces muscle tension uh we know that it increases uh blood flow to the area muscle oxygenation so if you're treating a, a certain uh kind of muscle afterwards we're increasing the oxygen that's getting to the muscle and the blood flow that's getting there one of the really cool things is that we have research that um, if you actually uh, treat an area prior to exercise, um, the soreness uh, that might be experienced post-exercise will be reduced. And then also um, acutely, you're able to kind of reduce muscle pain and soreness uh, kind of immediately in, in different areas that you treat as well. So when we think about all those uh, types of benefits, um, you can really kind of use it as a practical tool uh, as part of your warm up and preparation for physical activity. And then uh, not only that, but also uh, kind of post-exercise from a, a recovery modality as well. And one of the one of the things that's kind of really sets it apart as well in terms of the other things that are, are available, such as foam rollers and that, is that it's a handheld device. And the way it's designed, you can ultimately reach uh, kind of almost 95% of your body. Um, so uh, you don't need uh, to have a full-time trainer who's traveling with you to be able to treat you and provide manual therapy. It can be something that uh, that anyone can use uh, to get those kind of those benefits from it. Yeah, for sure, Tim. And uh, I don't know how good this is going to sound, but I'm going to put the device kind of close to the <laughs> the mic and just just for fun to have you all hear it. So. Uh... You probably could have heard me uh, vibrating a bit there, but it's it's really a fantastic advice. And I can tell you again that, you know, when I used to play matches and I, you know, the next day I would feel a lot very sore in my legs specifically. Um, but now using Theragun, uh, I would not, I, I don't really feel sore afterwards. And it's just a really enjoyable experience and just a lot more convenient and really easier than than a, uh, a foam roller or a lacrosse ball. That's very important too, you know, just having a way to execute, uh, you know, a certain vital function of recovery in a manner that you enjoy. Uh, and that's something that Theragun uh, provides there. And, uh, and Tim, I know we're getting kind of close to, to time and just let me know if you have to run, but, um, I, I understand there are a couple different, uh, kinds of, of the Theragun. Is that right? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I'll jump into that, uh, in a second, but what I wanted to touch yeah. upon is, is kind of what you just described. And I think you actually previously mentioned it, um, kind of as athletes, uh, especially amateur athletes that have lifestyles that are, that are busy, you have jobs, families, etc. I think one of the, the key things when it comes comes to sports science in general when it comes to recovery is finding things that are convenient um, because oftentimes if things are a challenge to do um, they are often the first thing if they're inconvenient they're the first thing that gets dropped so I think that's one of the advantages to Theragun is that um, it literally can go in your in your bag to the court it can be used on the side of the court it could be used at home um, and it doesn't require anyone else so I think um, kind of that's a that's a key theme to all these different types of uh, and sports science uh, kind of methods that we've talked about today and recovery methods uh, is that convenience uh, and finding ways to, to kind of change your behavior uh, and build a new habit is is what's really important. Um, but yes, uh, different models. Um, so kind of really three three different models. Um, 
and uh, you've got the the G3 Pro. Uh, this is really the kind of the model for professional athletes and uh, kind of the uh, the most robust and the most versatile. So it gives you the most options uh, in terms of using percussive therapy for for a benefit as a as a tennis athlete. Then you've got um, your and that one is also. For anyone who has facilities, fit, uh, tennis facilities, fitness facilities, that's also the one that uh, is kind of really for built for like commercial grade uh, use as well, repetitive use by a lot of different people. After that, you've got the G3, um, and this is kind of the the premium consumer model where. Um, doesn't quite have all the features uh, of the G3 Pro, uh, but still really, really great. And then you've got the Live model, uh, which is uh, kind of the cheapest of the three models uh, and really making percussive therapy uh, accessible to, to anyone. Awesome, Tim. Thanks for that summary. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's really great advi- uh, a great device and I love it and I enjoy using it. And it really makes recovery actually very, very enjoyable uh, and much easier to do uh, than than other methods. So, uh, and if you're interested in checking it out and potentially investing in one, you can go to tennisfiles.com/theragun, uh, and yeah, just just go there to check it out. And I'll have that link in the show notes. Uh, Tim, really appreciate your your time today. I was wondering where we can learn more about and connect with you. Um, yeah, so. Uh, I will admit I, I'm pretty poor at social media, um, but uh, you, you can certainly uh, feel free to follow me. So on Instagram, uh, I am the golf scientist. Uh, I have a, a background in golf, so you'll have to ignore that bit. But uh, the golf scientist is where you can find me on Instagram. And Tim J. Roberts is where you can find me on, on Twitter as well. Um, but also... Um, People can feel free to, if they have more questions or whatever, if you want to send an email uh, to tim at scientific-athlete.com, I'd be happy to answer any questions in terms of sports science, and uh, that's no problem at all. Fantastic, Tim. I really enjoyed talking with you today and appreciate your time again. I was wondering uh, to, you know, ask you this, this final question here, which is, what is one key tip that you can give our audience to help them become better athletes? One key tip is a that's a challenging one, um, but I I, I think it, it really revolves uh, around kind of building consistent behaviors. Um, I think oftentimes we we try and gather as much information, as much great information as we can in terms of how do we optimize our training, how do we optimize sleep, nutrition, hydration, uh, the use of recovery modalities, all these types of things, and I think. None of it really matters unless you actually consistently complete a behavior. So um, kind of my one tip would be uh, as you consider all the different ways that you are uh, kind of learning about becoming a better athlete, um, pick one, find ways of making it more convenient to fit into your life uh, and then work at it consistently. And I think that'll that'll really help you become a better athlete. Awesome, Tim. Well, thank you very much again for coming on to the Tennis Falls podcast and really appreciate all the great work that you have done and continue to do. And uh, again, I highly encourage everybody to check out Theragun uh, and you can go to tennisfalls.com slash Theragun to check it out and uh, really enjoy using it. So thanks again, Tim. Uh, All the best to you and your team and definitely looking forward to connecting again soon. Awesome. No, thank you very much for uh, for the opportunity to be uh, be here and kind of talk to your listeners and uh, we'll uh, excited to to listen back to this when we when we can. Thanks, Tim. All right. I really hope you enjoyed that interview with Tim Roberts from Theragun. Tim, I really appreciate you coming on to the show and giving us your knowledge about athlete monitoring, workload, and recovery, and a bit of nutrition as well. 
And uh, as I mentioned, uh, all of the resources that we talked about on the interview today will be available at tennisfaz.com slash 138. That's tennisfaz.com slash 138. And Tim was nice enough to forward me a couple uh, very helpful PDFs, one of a, a regarding wellness screen and another regarding the SRPE scale, which is the Session Rating of Perceived Exertion Scale. And you definitely want to check those out. So look at the show notes, uh, whether that's inside the description in your podcast app or if you go to tennisfiles.com slash 138, those will be there as well as a very cool article um, about internal and external load monitoring. And uh, also, really, I personally highly encourage you to check out Theragun and you can uh, you can get special uh, member pricing here through my link at tennisfiles.com slash Theragun. Uh, yeah, yeah, really been enjoying using it. It's really relaxing. And as I mentioned, I also, uh, but my parents have been using it too, and they really enjoy it. And I am just way more relaxed using Theragun. Really, really good product. Really cool story behind it as well, as Tim talked about. Also, I just want to touch upon, you know, it's uh, tough times these days, obviously. I hope that you're all being as healthy as you can and safe and responsible and considerate of others in this time of, uh, of craziness with COVID-19. I am personally self-quarantining myself, although the urge is very high to <laughs> go out and have fun and whatnot, but I'm coping by uh, using my new slinger bag, which I'm really excited about, and uh, it's basically a ball machine that's, that's pretty cool and portable. And, uh, you know, just practicing. Uh, I mean, something really, really important that I found is exercise. I actually didn't do much of that for the first few days since like the news for whatever reason, really. I think I was just working too hard on the summit, to be honest. And I started feeling like crud. (laughs) And then I started exercising because I just really did not enjoy feeling like that. And immediately my, my mood changed. I felt so much better. So, uh, it's, it's really a relaxing, really a relaxing method. I would say is, you know, if you're, whenever you're feeling stressed, I find that exercise helps a lot. Or if your mind is racing and whatnot, just get a little sweat in. So, I mean, there's so much to work on. I might have to do a podcast episode on how to improve your game during, isolation like this um, but you know just real quick obviously you can be working on your serve maybe hit with one other person just uh don't uh don't do too many handshakes or sneezing on each other of course and i mean you can work on your your physicality your your uh, mobility your flexibility and uh, your endurance, your footwork on the court. So really, there's a lot of things. You know, you don't just use the excuse of this um, unfortunate uh, spreading of COVID-19 to not work on your game and let it go down the crapper. <laughs> so there you go. But maybe I'll do a full episode. Just let me know if you want me to do that on things we can do during this time. It seems like all the podcasts that I'm listening to are talking about uh, this new virus and so I might take the plunge. We'll see. But in any case, wishing you all the best. And I really would appreciate it if you could leave a review for the Tennis Files podcast. And you can just do that by going onto your podcast app of your choice. And there will be a review button somewhere there. 
for I, for uh, Apple Podcasts, you can just go to tennisfiles.com slash Apple Podcasts or tennisfiles.com slash iTunes, either one, and leave a review. would really appreciate that, and it would help the show be more visible to more people and go up the go up the ranks so that more people can see it and it'll help more people that way. So I really would appreciate that. I will also leave you with a quote as I often like to do at the end of the show. And this one is by, and I might, I'm going to use an accent here. Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. Hope that, hope that was proper. Hope that did justice to Mr. Goethe. Uh, And Johann said, knowing is not enough. We must apply. Willing is not enough. We must do. Super powerful in every aspect. I mean, there's a lot of people, uh, and I, you know, I'm guilty of this too, of course. Everyone is, I think. We accumulate a lot of knowledge. We study something so much, and then we don't actually take the action that we need. You know, we watch a hundred YouTube videos on the serve, but then we make excuses when it comes time to actually practice or commit to practicing, and so the serve uh, goes nowhere. So. You really must apply what you have learned and also act too. You can't just tell yourself that you're willing. Oh, yeah, I'm willing to do this or tell whoever when you're talking about your game. Oh, yeah, I'm definitely willing to put in the work, but then it hasn't actually been put in. I mean, you got to follow through on your word, right? So excellent quote by Mr. Goth. That pretty much rhymed. Pretty cool. (laughs) All right, well... (laughs) Uh, you know, I'm, I'm always good for a couple really, really corny jokes. So anyways, I am wishing you all the best. Please stay healthy out there or in there and, um, you know, read a book. Don't just be wedded to your phone. Another problem that, that I've, uh, that I had today, actually this morning, I spent too much time on the phone and just caught myself and was and told myself, Hey, take it easy, pal. And I started reading and I felt so much better. My eyes felt better. They stopped feeling like sandpaper. And then I went on the computer to work on tennis files and my eyes felt like sandpaper again. But don't worry, I have eye drops for that. All right. Well, you're probably hearing more than you want to (laughs) about my my life. But um, I'm wishing you all the best again (laughs) and uh, keep keep finding ways to improve your game and staying healthy and staying mindful you know try some meditation exercise um, communicating with others and keep the faith and stay positive so i will talk to you for sure next week and i'm working freaking hard on the summit so i will keep you updated on that please subscribe to my newsletter at tennisfiles.com Yes, tennisfiles.com. And you'll also receive a free ebook called The Building Blocks of Tennis Success to thank you for subscribing. And of course, you'll receive an email to join the summit for free very soon in a few weeks. All right, that's it. This is Mirban signing off, and I will see you on the next episode of the Tennis Files Podcast. Stay punny. Thanks for listening to the Tennis Files Podcast. For more tips to help you improve your tennis game, visit tennisfiles.com.